My name is Mike Holloway. I'm the church administrator here at Omaha Bible Church. And I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me this morning. 1 Corinthians and the 15th chapter. Follow along with me as I read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Kephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we come before you this morning, humbled by the fact of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that even this morning you would teach us through the work of your Holy Spirit the truths of the gospel. I pray you would cement in our mind, Father, the pure gospel. Pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit's power would be working through us to teach us the gospel and then to proclaim it to others and to live it out in our lives day after day after day, in our relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our families, with those we work with, with those we minister with here at church. I pray, Father, that your power through your Holy Spirit would teach us even this morning and throughout this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In today's message, my purpose is to remind you about the most important message in the Bible. That is the central facts of the gospel. There is nothing more central to Christianity than the gospel. There is nothing more critical to the church today and to believers than a solid understanding of the gospel. It is humbling to even say those words because in truth, we will only touch on the essential core of the gospel in our passage today. This side of heaven, none of us will ever come to comprehend the full meaning of the gospel in our lives. But God has been gracious to us and has revealed much in His Word, including what we need to know with regards to the gospel. Be sure that today, the gospel is under serious attack people who would call themselves Christians, people who would want to manipulate the gospel for their own purposes, make it seem simpler or perhaps more attractive than it really is, are there trying to distort it in many, many churches around this world, even this morning. That was the situation in Corinth during Paul's time as well. The subject Paul is dealing with in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in the whole chapter, is the bodily resurrection of the dead. False teaching with regard to the resurrection of the body had taken hold in Corinth. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. This false teaching did not deny the eternity of the soul, but rather it denied bodily resurrection. This was a common belief amongst the people in the Roman Empire. The religious environment in Corinth was a pluralistic one. Many, many religions with many, many gods were worshipped in Corinth. But the Greeks had this idea that spiritual things were good. Things of the soul were good. Spiritual things. 
But physical things, on the other hand, were evil, were bad. So a belief in an eternal soul was acceptable to them, but a physically resurrected body was surely not acceptable to them. Note the reaction to Paul's preaching at Athens in Acts 17. Paul is speaking. He says to the crowd, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ, whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked Him. They mocked the idea of the physical resurrection of the dead. This false teaching was not unique to the Corinthians. Paul had to deal with it in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes about those who are teaching only a spiritual resurrection. He writes, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Bodily resurrection was also an issue for the Jews during these times. There were two basic religious parties in Jerusalem at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection of the dead. And the more theological liberal more theologically liberal Sadducees did not. Paul used this doctrinal division in his trial before the ruling council of the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts 23. Luke writes, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. This issue of the bodily resurrection of the dead is the context in which we approach our passage this morning. Well, you say, how serious can this issue be? It is of the utmost importance, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. It is so serious that Paul says that if you deny the bodily resurrection of believers, you are in effect denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and in doing that, you deny the true gospel. You see, Christ's bodily resurrection is the proof, it is the guarantee that believers will be bodily raised from the dead. Now, to be sure, his arguments for bodily resurrection, beginning in verse 12, start off with the right background. Paul starts chapter 15 by giving four reminders in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 3 and 5. Paul lays out the core of the gospel in verses 3 and 5 with four central points. But before we go there, take a look at verse 13. Let's see what Paul says about this issue of bodily resurrection once again. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul lays it right out front. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead, then Christ himself was never raised from the dead. There are implications to that. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Jump down to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ's resurrection is absolutely central to the gospel. And Paul is bringing the message home that you cannot deny it. You cannot deny the bodily resurrection of believers because Christ guaranteed it with his death on the cross. Let's go to verse 1. 
Let's read verses 1 and 2 and see if you can pick up on the four reminders that Paul has for the Corinthians in these first two verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The four reminders are, number one, Paul preached the gospel to them. Number two, they received the gospel. Number three, they stand in the gospel. And number four, they are being saved by the gospel. That phrase that Paul uses there at the very beginning of verse 1, now I would remind you, is used to tell people who are acting like they don't know what they have already been taught. Okay? I'm a parent. I used to have little kids. We'd take them out in the front yard and they'd play. What did I tell them to do when they were playing in the front yard? Stay out of the street. I heard it over here. Don't go in the street. Well, guess what they're invariably drawn to? The street, okay? So what do I have to do? I have to remind them, right? I've told them before. I've told them over and over, but I have to remind them again. It's no different than cleaning their bedroom, right? Now, that's a little later stage in life. But, you know, by the time they're teenagers, you're going, remember, you need to clean your room. And you remind them over and over and over again. Eventually, sometimes you give up. But Paul is not giving up, okay? Paul is bringing home the point. I'm going to remind you of the gospel. That word gospel literally means good message or good news. The gospel, the word gospel is used 76 times in the New Testament. And 60 of those are used by Paul. Paul was a great defender of the purity of the gospel, and he wanted to make it clear that he received the gospel directly from Christ. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians, just a book, a couple of books towards the back of your Bible from 1 Corinthians 15. You'll go to 2 Corinthians and then to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 3. We're going to read verses 3 and 4. What does Paul say about this gospel? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jump down to verse 6. I am astounded that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is concerned that the Galatians are abandoning the true gospel and turning to a different one. Verse 7. Not that there is another one, Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Those who are in Galatia, the false teachers, are trying to twist the gospel. Now keep in mind, this will not be an unrecognizable gospel. There will be some commonalities between this gospel, the false gospel, and the true gospel. But leave no doubt, it is a different gospel. It is a twisting of the gospel. And Paul has strong words now in verse 8 for those who would do that. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That word means anathema or condemned to hell. That's how strongly Paul is setting forth the true gospel. Go down to verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul wants it clear that he received the gospel directly from Christ. And while he did not get it from the other apostles, he did not get it from Peter, his gospel is not different from theirs. It is the same gospel. This brings us to the first of Paul's reminders. Paul preached the gospel to them. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we're back to 1 Corinthians, 
But instead of stopping at chapter 15, I want you to go back to chapter 1. Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians in his introductory comments in this letter that he did not include works of any kind in his gospel. He didn't include baptism or any other work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross, that's another word that Paul uses for the gospel. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the gospel to the world, the gospel to the unbeliever, the gospel to those who have not trusted in Christ is viewed as moronic, as silly, as foolishness. This verse reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 1, verse 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, despite the fact that the world sees the gospel as folly and foolishness, worthy of shame, and despite the pressure from the world to make the gospel more appealing, less offensive, more sophisticated, more acceptable, Paul refuses to adjust the gospel. But rather, he speaks of preaching Christ alone. Go down to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's move on to the second reminder. It flows from the first. The the gospel is first preached and then it is received. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. John chapter 1 tells us, To all who received Christ, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Paul reminds the Corinthians that they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believing in the gospel of Christ is what is necessary for eternal life. I'm reminded of when I was still searching. I was an unbeliever. And I had been directed to the gospel of John and was told, read through the gospel of John. See how you gain eternal life. See how you're saved. So I took out a sheet of paper and I started reading the Gospel of John. And as I'm reading through the Gospel of John, I'm making a note. Every time it says how you are saved or how you gain eternal life, I jotted down just a few of them. Far less than a quarter of them that I I found. Listen to some of them. Some of them will be very familiar to you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And then the whole purpose of the book of John, the whole Gospel of John's purpose is summed up by the Apostle in John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I was pretty convicted by the time I got to the end of the Gospel of John. I didn't quite get it all yet. God was still drawing me. But it was pretty clear how you gained eternal life, how you were saved. There was no doubt. The Corinthians had received Christ. Paul was sure of that, and he was reminding them of that. Let's move on to reminders three and four. Reminder number three. They stand in the gospel. If you are truly saved, you will not abandon the gospel. It will never happen. Romans chapter 5 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a true believer, I will stand in Christ until He returns. If you don't stand, it's simply an indication that you never were saved. You never had saving faith. The fourth reminder builds on the third. Number four, they are being saved by the gospel. This is talking of the continual, ongoing work of the gospel in the life of the Christian to bring him to maturity in Christ. Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God, through His Holy Spirit, is working through you right now to bring you to maturity as a believer. If you are His child, He is completing His work. Paul's reminding the Corinthians of that. Now, Paul does qualify this last reminder with two conditional phrases. First, he says, if you hold fast to the word, and second, unless you believed in vain, that is, without purpose. These two conditions point to the fact that saving faith is an enduring faith. Saving faith is authentic and persevering, as described in Colossians 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You see how the gospel is central to this as well. With the four reminders to the Corinthians now firmly fixed in their mind, Paul moves to the primary and most important message he wants to remind them about, which is the central or core message of Christianity. That is the gospel. Now, there is a danger here that we want to recognize before we move forward. The danger is that in narrowing down to the gospel to only the items mentioned in these next few verses. These four things are not all you must believe to be saved. But to be sure, these items are at the very heart, at the core, at the center of the gospel. They are the fundamentals of Christianity. Biblical Christianity is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul declares these things as first important. He says they are the most important. They are the greatest importance. They are first and foremost. Paul leaves no doubt about the priority of what he is about to say. The four basic facts laid out by Paul in verses 3 to 5 are number one, Christ died for our sins. That's in verse 3. Number two, he was buried in verse 4. Number three, he was raised also in verse 4. And then fourth, he appeared in verses 5 and following. If these things are not crystal clear in our minds as the church and as individual believers, we are in deep trouble. 
The first one, Christ died for our sins. This is the simplest and most basic statement of the gospel. If Christ did not die, there could be no resurrection. But all people die, right? Everyone. Billions of people have died on this earth. Many thousands were crucified by the Romans during the reign of their empire. It was a very common form of execution, crucifixion was. So what's so significant about Christ's death? What is significant about those five words, Christ died for our sins? Well, the, very, the word in the middle is extremely important. The word for. That word for in the Greek is huper. It carries the meaning of on our behalf or in our place. So you could read it that Christ died in our place for our sins. Christ died on our behalf for our sins. We've already seen that or something very close to it in the passages we looked at earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians and in Galatians. Christ could do this because He was the sinless God-man who came to earth, took on humanity, He fulfilled the law perfectly, and He died in our place for our sins. The angel speaking to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 about Mary's pregnancy announced, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sin. This was God's plan from eternity past. Jesus Christ was our substitute to pay the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death, which is separation from God in hell for eternity. That is the penalty for sin. You and I as sinners deserve to pay that penalty. The Bible makes clear what the problem is for each and every one of us in the human race. The problem is we have all sinned against the holy God. And as sinners, we justly deserve His wrath. We are sinners by practice and we are sinners by nature. Let's be clear. Sin is our problem. And the penalty for sin cannot be paid by attending church, by being baptized, by being nice, by doing more good things than bad things. By coming to Omaha Bible Church, your penalty for sin will not be paid. Or by going to a Methodist church, or a Baptist church, or a Roman Catholic church, or a Lutheran church. Or by giving money to your favorite cause, whatever that might happen to be. In and of ourselves, in our efforts, we can do nothing to pay the penalty except suffer eternal separation from God in hell. We have nothing to offer. The statement, Christ died for our sins, can also be looked at by what it doesn't say. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 16 of chapter 2. You've already been in Galatians once, so hopefully you remember where that is. Galatians chapter 2, just a few, few books towards the back of your Bible. Paul is making the point to the Galatians that there is no work they can bring before God that will satisfy the penalty for sin. He is saying that they will not be justified or declared righteous by their works. Let's see what it says. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. There he says it plainly. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in Christ Jesus. And then he finishes that verse, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one 
There are no qualifiers. It is not Christ died for our sins plus all the good things that we do. It is not Christ died for our sins plus be baptized. It is not Christ died for our sins and hopefully the good things you'll do will balance with the bad things you do. It's Christ died for our sins. Turn to the next book, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. How are you saved? By believing. Through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. It is the free gift of God. It is grace. And then in verse 9, he He brings the point home. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I have nothing to boast about. I am a sinner. I bring nothing to God. My righteous deeds are viewed by Him as filthy rags. My good deeds are filthy rags, according to our prophet Isaiah. It is not Christ plus me. It is not Christ plus my works. We have nothing to offer God, but the gospel does. The good news, the gospel, is that Christ died for our sins. Christ died as our substitute. As a child of God, He died as my substitute and as your substitute. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a few pages from where we are now. You don't need to turn there. says that God the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, to be sin for us. Peter states it clearly in the first letter, in the second chapter, verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ bore my sin and your sin on the cross. Our sin was pinned up there with Him. Galatians 2, verse 20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I died with Christ. My sin is accounted to Him. His righteousness is accounted to me. What a glorious trade. What a glorious deal. You won't find this. I mean, this is better than cash for clunkers. All right? What a deal. One chapter over, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ came under the condemnation of sin. He became a curse. He took on the judgment for you and for me. Now back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 3. There's a little phrase that qualifies or I should say is in addition to Christ died for our sins. And I don't want us to miss it. It is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That little phrase is a loaded statement. Because inside that little phrase, it is referring to the Old Testament Scriptures and all that is there that points to Christ. Keep in mind, on the Emmaus Road, Luke 24, Jesus was walking with two disciples. And He said to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Over 600 years before Christ died, the prophet Isaiah told of the substitutionary death of the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53 in the most dramatic, climactic section of Old Testament prophecy, 
the crucifixion and substitutionary death of Christ on the cross is talked about 700 years before it happens. In 1 Corinthians 5, we are told Christ is our Passover lamb. Referring back to the Passover in Exodus, when the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites who had placed blood on the doorposts. In the book of Hebrews, we are told how the Old Testament sacrifices of Leviticus were in anticipation of their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. The sacrifices clearly portrayed that the penalty for sin was death. The payment for sin also must be made in blood. Go back and read through Leviticus. Read the last chapters of Exodus. There is death and blood everywhere because there had to be payment for sin. All of that was looking forward to Jesus Christ and the true payment for sin by the true high priest, our Lord and Savior. John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus Christ coming towards him in John 1, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, an incredible amount of truth packed in that one little verse. The second basic fact of the Gospel is that Christ was buried. Here the reality and certainty of death is confirmed. Keep in mind, These Roman soldiers were professionals in death. They were used to crucifying people. They professionally thrust a spear into his side. Their job was to make sure people were dead before they got taken off of the cross. They allowed his body to be wrapped in burial cloths. The Roman executioners declared him dead. Stated plainly, you bury dead people. He was dead. The burial removes all doubt about the actual death of Christ. No swoon theories will hold up. No great ideas of why these Romans would put their lives on the line to explain what happened. Jesus was really dead. The third basic fact of the gospel is Christ was raised on the third day. This is a historical event. It happened at a specific day and time in history. The Gentiles of the day, including some in Corinth, had no problem with the death and burial of Christ. But bodily resurrection was a whole nother matter. During his earthly ministry, Christ predicted he would rise from the dead and he would do it on the third day. In Matthew chapter 12, he tells the Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They seek for a miracle, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Matthew 16, we are told that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And after Jesus cleanses the temple in John chapter 2, the Jews ask for a sign, a miracle. Jesus replies, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus knew this was God's plan from eternity past. Jesus, in obedience to God the Father, went forward in a life that he knew would end in a cruel death on the cross in which he would bear the weight of the sin of the world. This wasn't an accident. 
Jesus foretold it as had the Old Testament foretold it thousands of years before. This gospel is there since Genesis and before in the scriptures. The fourth basic fact of the gospel is that Christ appeared to witnesses. This is absolute proof of the resurrection. These appearances were not visions or dreams, but the physical glorified body of Jesus is present. Paul's list is not an exhaustive one. Rather, it is a selective list that includes those things or those appearances that the Corinthians would have knew of. They would have knew either these people or known of these appearances that Paul mentions. He lists the appearances of the risen Christ to Kephas, to Peter, to the twelve apostles, to 500 brothers at one time, to his brother James, and then to himself. By any historical measure, the resurrection is a fact. We know history by the reports and accounts of those who observed it. In this case, Paul challenges those who doubt the resurrection to check up on it with those whom are still alive. He doesn't say, take my word for it. He's not trying to pull a fast one. There are still people alive that these Corinthians can go talk to if they want to find out if these appearances really happened. And he says, go talk to them. Check it out. The facts of the resurrection are sure. The resurrection from the dead is the final demonstration of Christ's victory over sin, over death, over the devil, and it guarantees salvation, eternal life, and our own bodily resurrection from the dead as believers. Turn with me to Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. For while were we, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's that gospel statement again. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In effect, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. We didn't do anything to make us appealing so God would save us. We didn't do anything to draw God towards us. But while we were still sinners, still His enemy, He died for us. That's the amazing message of the gospel. God doesn't say, clean up your life and maybe I'll accept you. He doesn't say in his gospel to try harder, to do better, to do good to other people, to make something of your life in order to be saved. Because none of those payments are good enough. He doesn't say, live your best life now. He doesn't say, become a better you. He doesn't say, have a purpose-driven life. He doesn't say even reading your Bible or praying every day will pay the penalty for your sin. Because it won't. I could give you a checklist of good advice on things to do to improve your marriage, to improve your relationship with your kids, to grow your wealth, to stay healthy, and keep the earth green. I could give you all those great things that you could do. Good advice. I could provide a laundry list of rules to follow and hoops to jump through, and all of them would do you no good. You could go to many, many, many churches today and hear that kind of stuff. And you'd hear it week after week, and quite honestly, people will flock to it. But quite honestly, doing all that is futile. It's futile. Your problem isn't that you need good advice or more education. My problem isn't that I need to have a different perspective on life. My problem is sin. Your problem is sin. 
And that is what must be dealt with. And none of these things will pay the penalty for sin. But God says, look at my son. Look at what he has done. Look at my son. Look at what he has completed and finished on the cross. God says, look at my son who in an act of overwhelming love went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. You can have eternal life in Him. There is no other way. There's no compromise. There's no adjustments. This is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because you're a sinner under the condemnation of God. Yet Jesus Christ went to the cross to do what only He could do. The good message is, the good news is, the wonderful news is, He paid the penalty for your sin. Jesus went to the cross to do what only He could do. You can believe in Him, experience forgiveness and receive righteousness from Christ, or you can choose not to believe in Him and you will pay the penalty yourself. That involves eternal internal separation from Him in hell. Now, I think I've laid out pretty clearly the gospel implications for unbelievers. But don't think this isn't a message for those of you who've placed their faith in Christ. Because our flesh is strong. And our flesh wants to always take us back to those things that we would like to focus on. To those things that we exhibit our own sinfulness in. And day after day, it's a humbling thing to realize that you're a sinner and Christ died for your sins. And that should not just affect the relationship you have with your Lord. That has to affect the relationship you have with everybody else in your life. Your spouse, your children, your parents, your family, those you work with, those you come to church with, those you minister with, with unbelievers? How is the gospel penetrating your life? We're all called to be messengers, ambassadors for Christ, and tell others about the gospel. You think you can say Christ died for our sins? At its core, at its basic, that's what the gospel is. It's a great place to start. And it's extremely humbling when dealing, husbands, with your wife to realize that you're a fallible sinner and you're drawn to all the things to do for you out of selfishness and conceit. And you'd like to manipulate people around you, but that's not what the gospel's about because Jesus gave us an example. And he gave us the power as well to do it through the Holy Spirit. He gave us the dynamite, the power to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to him. Last passage, Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Galatians, Ephesians, you've already been there. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourself. That's a hard one. I'd have to confess, I fail on this one quite frequently. I think of myself as better than others. It's a sin that I constantly commit. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel is so wonderful. It is for sinners, for broken, contrite, and humble people who know they need forgiveness from God. Come to Christ out of faith, out of adoration, out of thankfulness and gratitude for what God has done through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross, was buried, and was raised in victory over sin and death. Let us pray. We are humbled, Father, by your almighty power, by your almighty love, and by your almighty justice. You are the all-wise God. You have provided for us in so many ways, most of all in the provision of your Son who died on the cross for our sins. I pray, Father, if there are any here today who have not yet trusted Christ, that the Holy Spirit would be working in their heart to draw them to you. That through your Son, Jesus Christ, they would come to a recognition that they are sinners and they need a Savior. I pray that all of us, Lord, would turn to you in all the areas of our lives. For we have sinned, Father, in placing ourselves above others, in dealing with others out of conceit and rivalry, But yet even in that, Lord, you have provided power through the gospel and your Holy Spirit for us to live in ways that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.